0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Bad vibe man, really bad vibe, want a reefer?
2: Oh no, not the killer weed,
3: you know man, I believe in freedom,
4: oh my.
2: good morning London it is Thursday August 27th 2009 I'm Bob Metz and this is just right on chRw 94.9 FM where we will be with you from now till noon no, no not right wing just right color
4: color and white under the bed clothes, everything will be
2: And welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on, share your opinions with us on some of the subjects we're going to be talking about today. And uh, today's today's show is going to be kind of strange for what I usually do. I've had a potpourri of what I call deja vu events this week, been on a bit of a roller coaster with a new surprise update campaign or election to deal with. And I'm going to share some of my week with you and and some of the strange coincidences and insights that occur to someone in my position and situation getting involved in politics in the public eye so to speak. Now I realize it's no secret uh, to a great many of you that I am and have been involved in many local um, organized political campaigns on an ad hoc basis from time to time and that I'm also involved with Freedom Party both in its electoral and its non-electoral activities. And if nothing else, today's show might give you some idea of the kinds of things I do in the political and social arena when I'm not here on CHRW Live, spreading my blasphemous philosophies of freedom and capitalism. So, I've got a very um, ambitious agenda today. A lot of today's show has to do with follow ups to issues and events we've covered on past editions of Just Right, and which, by the way, are always available to you free of charge with no hassles whatsoever at www.justrightmedia.org, where you'll be able to find all the shows and references that I may refer to today. So, today's show covers everything from comic books. To pot laws and the Prince of Pot Mark Emery's farewell tour before he goes to jail in a US prison, from the injustice of releasing the Pan Am Lockerbie bomber to the economic and political bomb of the Pan Am Games being hosted in Ontario. Plus, an Ontario by election in the riding of St. Paul's, plus a couple of live guests on the show today. And I think you'll understand why I have to make haste if I want to fit all that in between now and noon. But first on the lighter side as opposed to the light up side of the show that we'll get to later on my first Deja Vu guest appeared on Just Right originally just this past uh, June 18th um, we did a whole show on uh, comic books and the whole issue was about um, Archie getting married to Veronica Well my first guest is Gordon Mood Gordon are you with us? Hi, good morning. morning how are you? Once again I see you and your wife Carol Vandenberg in the pages of the London Free Press. There you were on page A2, August 20th. And you're holding the much-treasured issue of Archie's uh, the first of, I guess, what is it, five issues? Uh,
4: I believe it's going to be six, six. issues. Six. And uh, number 600, starting in 600.
2: S- this, so this is number 600 that you're holding there? Or? Yeah. S- so what's the story? Like, uh, did they get married? Or Is it over yet?
4: Well, it's, it's going to run for a number of issues and... Uh, it looks like they're going to get married, and it looks like uh, it's going to be uh, a, a, a sort of a what-if story. But I'm not completely sure how they're going to finish this story. So, is that uh, Archie um, finished high school, uh-huh. went graduated from college, and then proposed to Veronica?
2: And and uh, well, I notice I, I I can see in the picture in the Free Press, you're holding the book, and there's Veronica with the big words "Yes" uh, printed up there sounds like she accepted, did she?
4: Well, apparently she's accepted, uh, you know, they haven't actually, um, you know, through with the actual wedding yet.
2: Now, you say it's a six-issue story. I understand that uh, in the first issue, he just makes the proposal. The second one, he gets married. The third one, they already have kids, right? Yeah. And uh, do you know about the fourth or fifth? Is it really going to be the son of Archie, like you suggested when you were on the show?
4: really don't know where they're going to go with that or whether he's going to be uh, you know, woken up from a dream or or what, you know. I, I, I just, As a marketing thing, I'm, you know, it, it's great for short-term sales. I'm just not sure how long-term they're projecting it.
2: Now, in the, in the article in the free press there, they point out you've got 25 copies of the comic. I assume they've already sold out. Oh, yeah, we're getting
4: 35 more.
2: And... Um, and it says something that the, the, it won't arrive at the newsstands till September?
4: Well, <laughs> uh, it's just because the newsstands tend to get uh, comics at a later date because they're distributed by different companies and they have a, a returnable, um,
2: they can return them. Just board. a different distribution system, basically, eh? Now, uh, you know, I, I, I heard in, in uh, I think, even talking uh, to you and some of the folks around uh, the, the store there, uh, these urban legends or myths um, that you hear about the whole Archie thing. Um, I understand somebody was really disgusted over Archie's choice and decided to sell his number one Archie comic or something like that. Are these stories true?
4: Yeah, there was a guy who owned a <laughs> store in the States, and uh, I guess he was, I, I think, as part of his marketing campaign to Sell his number one. Uh, he issued a press release saying that he was disappointed with the choice and that he was going to sell his number one issue through uh, a big uh, uh, auction house in the states. So you know, it's partly marketing.
2: How, mu- how much would he have gotten for something like that? I think uh, I think he got
4: thirty-eight thousand.
2: Thirty-eight thousand dollars. Well, that's the time to sell it, eh? When everybody's uh, uh, interested in it.
4: Yeah, it was probably you know in. in near mint plus so you know it, it's a really great condition book that's very hard to find
2: fascinating now uh just one last thing um, i understand some people who haven't read archie for years are, are now calling up to get copies are they
5: oh yeah
4: uh, <laughs> a lot of people who you know haven't uh, read comics in years are, are coming in to buy that particular issue and the series itself so
2: you know, it, so when uh, you get so when you get these in, where can people go to, to get them?
4: Uh, we're at 350 Richmond, downtown London.
2: And um, we'll go with Archie all the way. Thanks for joining us today, okay, Gord. Thank you. Okay, take care. And that was Gord Mood from his home here in London, Ontario, uh, talking about the update on the Archie comic books. Well, actually, the, the the whole story of comic books is much more involved than you might think as you would find if you tune into our show, um, show number 108, back on June 18th. Which, by the way, also went deja vu a couple weeks ago when I was off with this uh, debilitating and crippling cold and flu a few (laughs) few weeks back on August 6th. So if you caught it that day, that would have been, uh, uh, you know, that was just a repeat that day. Now, moving on to something a little more on the heavier side. I experienced a rather delightful and unexpected coincidence on Tuesday of this week when I appeared on a live uh, CTS cross-country television talk show called Viewpoints on the Line which is hosted by Christine Williams you've heard uh, clips from this show several times on on our show here and you'll be hearing a significant clip from uh, the Tuesday's broadcast momentarily however you know talk about it's a small world department in, now i happen to be involved in the current uh, saint paul's by-election which is a provincial by-election you might not even know what's going on but it's sort of in a downtown toronto area because i'm the cfo chief financial officer for a uh, freedom party candidate and party leader paul mckeever uh, who incidentally and if all goes well will be joining us later in the show but on another issue entirely now Now, my opposing speaker on the CTS show on Tuesday is a very engaging fellow named Stuart Parker, who had just uh, unsuccessfully made a bid to be the NDP candidate in the same riding of St. Paul's. But that's not just the only weird thing. turns out that Stuart's a good friend of uh, John Thompson of the McKenzie Institute, who coincidentally is also a good friend of mine and has been an in-studio guest on this show here at CHRW, not only once, but twice. And, um by the way if you want to catch those shows they're also online again triple w just right and you can catch uh, john thompson on our seventh show way back may 31st 2007 and then our 60th show on june 26 2008 and uh, john is uh, you know a world known uh, person uh, expert on global terrorism and violence and issues of that and uh, i suppose that was more to do with the coincidence of the subject that we were there to discuss on this past uh, tuesday so what we're going to do now is break away for about nine minutes or so nine and a half minutes as we uh click into what happened here on uh, tuesday's debate now this was uh, aired live 2 2 pm our time coast to coast in canada on the crossroads television system which is number 16 on your cable dial and um, i never know what subject i'll be discussing until i get into the into the station there or the night before at least they let me know and i guess this time we we're going to be talking about uh, the lockerbie scandal and the pan am bombing and of course releasing uh, the prisoner the one person who was convicted for it so uh, without much uh, further ado i will allow christine williams host of the show to do the introductions and i'll be back in about ten minutes
0: now let's meet our viewpoints guests stuart parker is co-founder of the toronto democracy initiative he's also a lecturer at the university of toronto and a former leader of the bc green party and robert metz is also joining us he is president of the freedom party of ontario now the first subject matter that we're addressing its it's a bit complex and we're looking at very many angles of this particular story so feel free to call in with any of those comments and the lockerbie bomber is it that's been seen on the news all over youtube and What you might be aware of is the outrage over this pomp and ceremony celebration when he went back home to Libya. Now this man was received as if he was some kind of a royalty coming home at last. But there's a lot of controversy surrounding this as to why was he released? Now according to news report, we're being told that the reason was because he is in the last stages of cancer, so it was on compassionate grounds. But on the other hand, when you read more and you look at the scandals circulating in Britain it's being said that it more had to do with the business of things the multi-billion dollar contracts with Libya over oil so we're going to be discussing here first of all when you look at that celebration over a man that he was singly, single-handedly pointed out as being the sole person in this case where a lot of people lost their lives in that Pan Am when that Pan Am went down did it, was it appalling to you to see that welcome home first of all? And I'm going to start with you on this one Stuart.
3: Well I think any rational person would be outraged that uh, somebody is getting that kind of reception after committing such a heinous act. I think there's no question about that. Mm -hmm. Now one of the things that's unclear however, is we don't really have a sense of the level of popular appeal of this homecoming in Libya. What we have a sense of Is a dictator who's been in power for a long time, who is trying to shore up his support with an extremist constituency in Libya, a constituency that he embodied back in the Cold War, but of course you know, he's gotten old, he's gotten soft, he's had to make deals with the West, you know, Osama bin Laden and the like are far more appealing to Libyan extremists today. So what we have here is not so much a popular upwelling of support for the Lockerbie bomber, what we have is a leader once again trying to say, sure, I've begged to be let back in by America, Mm -hmm. but I'm still on the cutting edge of terrorism, extremism, Mm -hmm. and what Libya used to be known for back in the 80s when I was growing up. And I think that that's a lot of the angle that we're missing here. We're so focused on outrage in Britain and we've got a really clear picture of what's gone on in Britain once again Gordon Brown does not have the oily charisma of Tony Blair to pull off these really outrageous things and so everybody's focused on the weakness of Gordon Brown but I think what this really points to is the weakness of Muammar al-Qaddafi Here is a guy who's willing to put all kinds of economic development initiatives on the line to hold back major investments in his country for nine months because he wants Britain to sell him a symbol of what a hard-ass he used to be. And to me that suggests a regime that is far less secure than we in the West are perhaps thinking right now and a regime that is desperate to tap into that extremist intolerance that might be in danger of bringing it down the way qaddafi
2: came to power in the first place
0: mm-hmm. okay robert your position on this
2: i think Stewart has captured a lot of what i would have had to say and certainly mm-hmm. answered the question of what value would a dying person in his last three months of life be to anybody mm-hmm. in terms of you know the whole symbolism of it, and I think Stewart explained that perfectly. I think from our point of view, uh, quote the West, I think there's a different issue, and I think that 's letting the person go in the first place, which yes. I think was a tremendous act of injustice. I would call it morally outrageous, I would call it morally obscene without question. Um, the fact that you know that they 're saying that uh, now there 's a debate whether Was he really released over the uh, oil situation and the business dealings or was he released over issues of compassion? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the defenses coming out now are, well, it's compassion because that was why the cancer came in so handy, to be able to release him now. Mm -hmm. And... um, That to me is extremely misplaced compassion, I think. A lot of what passes for compassion is just another form of injustice, inverted. When you show compassion towards a person like that, what are you saying about the, the victims, about the innocent people? That's where justice really originates. It's not about punishing the guilty. It's about, you know, mm-hmm. honoring the, the innocent and, and uh, the, the people who've been hurt.
0: Now, in casual dialogue, you're given the feeling that it, it's questionable. Britain is now scrambling to defend itself, saying that this was about compassion. Which but, is at the the same, worst but at the same, but at this, yes, but at the same time, though. And I'm quoting here Lord Trefgharni, the chairman of the Libyan-British Business Council. He said outright that this illness basically only paved the way for his release, that discussions were underway long before that, that Libya wanted this man's release in exchange for billions of dollars worth of oil business. And in another article that we also gave to the two of you, you're looking at retail sales as well. Libya is seen now as a huge potential business partner, billions of dollars, imagine that. So on one hand, we hear an argument, did it have to do with the oil? But on the other hand, in reading these articles, it seems obvious, in fact, overt, that that did play a role somehow. Hi, Rashid, you're on the line.
1: Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good. I just had two points. If this person was released from prison, uh, well, if he, it if he was really due to compassion and, and this kind of thing, and there was no other reason, I think they should have just executed him. He's a mass murderer. He doesn't deserve compassion. Where was his compassion for the people he murdered? Secondly, if it was really about this oil, then I don't think the British government or whoever masterminded this is any better than those people who were celebrating for him when he he arrived there in Libya.
0: Rashid, I must say you bring up an excellent point. In looking at this story, there are going to be those that are disappointed, saying... It seems to be clear from the reports that Britain knew full well and has been in negotiations for some time concerning the multi-billion dollar contracts. There are again going to be those saying, what about ethics when it comes to business? And that's an area I want to address. Rashid, I want to thank you for calling in. When you look at the British approach to this, if they happen to be, if they could be implicated on the oil issue, which, according to these reports here, these negotiations have been going on for some time, so it does seem that way, clearly, then they're just as bad as the people you see in Libya. And, and I, I, I want to hear if the two of you agree with this, even remotely, first of all. I'm going to start with you on this one, Robert.
2: Well, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with, you know, have you ever watched um, the, the comedy, the British comedy series, Yes, Minister? Uh, been around, I think they've shot them all in the 80s, and they addressed this issue square on target wow. in one episode. And it was a very funny episode where British MPs went to the Mideast to do business. And in the East bribes were common, but you didn't talk about that in Britain. And everybody's handing around bribes as though, you know, it was no business. On, that was normal business there. And uh, there was this, uh, they, they did it humorously, of course, and they had this dichotomy between the way business was practiced in the west and in the east and and you know we think we can just bring come in with our own values into countries that don't share those values and we think we can carry on business in the same way as we've been used to. That's what I think is the greater issue here. Oil is just one of many commodities we trade with other nations, and those might be nations with which we have differences of political opinion. And so what happens is uh, certain countries tend to breach their agreements, breach their trade agreements, and that begins a chain of events that leads us down the path that we're into now. But basically, I think trying to equate the two standards of the West and East, if we're going to deal with uh, quote-unquote criminals, uh, we have to almost behave a little bit like them if we're going to do that to any degree. And that's why I think we might be walking into the businessmen, the executives who want to have all these things going on so they can make uh, a, a deal with the devil, really, is what I'm, I'm suggesting in the longer term. And, uh, of course, there's some... Do you think it's anything new,
0: Robert? Do you really think that deal with the devil philosophy of business, do you think it's really anything new?
2: No, what's new is Mm -hmm. uh, capitalism and and Hmm. not having to deal with the devil and two people gaining by the transaction and not one person imposing force on the Mm -hmm. other. That's Mm -hmm. where I see the major difference of this century as opposed to uh, past centuries. That part of the world, other parts of the world, they're living in the past, not in the future. And welcome back. Uh, that was again uh, broadcast live on CTS this past Tuesday, where I was a guest on the Christine Williams show. Um, now, what's really interesting, um, Stuart Parker and I. And by the way, Stuart was having a riot there. He was—he was a lot of fun. He was a very articulate speaker, um, and we got into one heck of a debate over basically uh capitalism versus socialism and i think it was one of the most uh, challenging and interesting debates that i've had with anyone and you will be hearing that uh when we deal with those subjects again in the future and i, sh- I sure expect to to meet Stewart again as uh, on our mutual roads in the future as well and uh you heard me refer there to uh, the yes minister uh television show that was done in the 80s british comedy show um you will be hearing an outtake from that very program that i mentioned on tuesday i managed to find it and uh, found the very scene uh, that was in my mind at the time i was saying this stuff on television or uh, yeah on tv now of course um uh, to get away from the whole, is it about oil and capitalism? You know, I've got I've got all of these clippings sitting in front of me right now um, about the release of this bomber, and basically everything I've highlighted says one thing, and it's basically, uh, I.E. here from uh, Associated Press, August 24th, the head of Scotland's government insists there was public support for the release on compassionate grounds. And uh, it's interesting, you know. Say what you want, even if it isn't about compassion. Um, why do they use that as an argument when they use it in public discourse? The reason is because it does work with a significant, a significant uh, sector of the public. No matter how much the people who are being damaged by the whole process uh, could can shout. And this brings me to an interesting. Uh, observation that was made again by uh dr leonard Peikoff in his book objectivism the philosophy of ayn rand when he's talking about mercy versus justice and he wrote way back uh, in the 70s he said he says you know the conventional view is that justice consists primarily in punishing the wicked um, but he says no justice consists first in not in condemning but in in admiring justice consists first in acknowledging the good If justice is the policy of identifying a man's just deserts and acting accordingly, mercy is the policy of identifying them, then not acting accordingly. Mercy substitutes for justice, a dose of the undeserved, and does so in the name of pity. The pity is not for the innocent among men or the good, but for the perpetrators of evil. The practical consequences of mercy are eloquently clear in today's courtrooms. The ones where criminals are righteously set free, not owing to any doubt about their actions or to any objective mitigating circumstances, but as an act of compassion for the helpless products of society. The man who gains by such an act is the criminal. The men who lose are his victims who conclude bitterly That there is no justice and quote you know it's like dr laura schlesinger used to say something along the lines of uh, you know to the victims everything's black and white but to the perpetrators it's always gray and you know speak of the devil did you see yesterday's London free press there it was right on the front page of the London free press Frustrated family seeks justice by Randy Richmond August 26 and it reads all the Seaborn family of London wants is a few more measly months of justice trying to see that their son's killer does his full sentence they've run up against bureaucracy frustration and even a medical condition known as broken heart syndrome we are not vengeful Gene Seaborn says we are not vindictive but they've had enough as the sentence for their son terry's killer dropped from a possible 25 years on the first charge to seven years on conviction to five years and nine months on appeal then to four years because of canada's early release system now the killer wants out even earlier on day parole they said end quote and apparently their son's killer jonathan badger was part of a gang that chased and beat their son to death apparently just for the fun of it and um you know that's the kind of people that we're letting out of our jails early i think anybody that's even capable of doing something like that uh we need to be protected from people like that um and mercy is not the way to protect us um mercy should be given towards the victims not towards the perpetrators of crime and it's amazing how this whole process of uh and again it's all part of altruism isn't it the 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 the, uh, the, the false philosophy of altruism of course so uh, you can see the pain and the harm it's doing, and and as we discussed on the show um, this past Tuesday, uh, there was a lot of people affected too. I have to tell you, we got a lot of calls on that show, and uh, which was apparently unusual given the summer month and the, and the time of year. And you could tell a lot of the people were from that, from that part of the world, or or at least uh, who emigrated from there, and seemed to know what was going on on the other side of the globe gonna break now at the bottom of the hour and as i promised um uh, you're going to be hearing that clip from yes minister uh, talking about how business practices are carried on interestingly enough the episode that it comes from is called uh, the moral dimension and when we come back on the other side of the commercials we're going to be switching to Uh, a different subject. You'll be hearing Dalton McGinty from his YouTube website promoting the Pan Am Games for Southern Ontario, and uh, that should be an interesting situation. We'll be back right after this.
5: I'm the only woman here.
2: Yes, special dispensation. They've made you an
5: honorary man for the evening. (laughs) This is going to look wonderful on the corner table in our hall. Oh, well, actually, Mrs. Hacker, I'm not sure if... If what? Well, you see, it's a gift to the minister. But it's his hall, too. Uh, No, what I mean is I don't think you'll be allowed to keep it Why ever not? Well, I suppose it could be thought if it were valuable It could influence some ministers I mean, not your minister, that is my minister Our minister, uh, your husband as uh, As it is, in fact I mean, he is I mean, well, some ministers Bernard Sorry Are you telling me we have to give it back? Oh, no, no, that would be an insult. We can't keep it. We can't give it back. What do I do? Well, it becomes the property of the government and it's put in a basement somewhere in Whitehall. Are you sure we can't keep it? Not if it's worth more than about 50 pounds. How do we find out? You get a valuation. Could you get a valuation? Wouldn't it be wonderful if it was less than 50 pounds because it's awfully pretty? Well, I... (laughs) I suppose I could try. Oh, Bernard, you are wonderful. I don't know what we'd do without you. Excuse me, Effendi, but I could not help overhearing your conversation about valuing the gift. Perhaps I can help. Oh, well, that would be... uh, Do you have any idea how much? Of course. An original 17th century rosewater jar is very valuable. Oh, dear. You are not pleased? Yes and no. You see, if it's too valuable, the minister won't be allowed to keep it, and I was rather hoping it wasn't. Ah. Uh, well, as I was saying, an original 17th century rosewater jar is very valuable, but this copy, though excellently done, is not of the same order. Oh, good. Uh, about how much? I would be interested to hear your guess. Oh, uh, well, a little under 50 pounds? Brilliant. Quite a connoisseur, and you would sign a valuation certificate? But of course. <laughs> your English customs are very strange. Oh, why? You are so strict about a little gift, and yet your electronics company pays our finance minister a million dollars for his cooperation in securing this contract. Is this not strange?
6: You—you
5: <laughs> you don't mean? Of course, I worked for the finance ministry. I got my share of the money.
1: <laughs> keeping
5: my mouth shut. I I see. Would you excuse me for a moment?
7: Today we are releasing our bid book which outlines in detail our plan to host the 2015 Games. The bid Book is all about the how, and I want to speak briefly, if I might, about the why. Why are we doing this? Why are we going after this? Why are we so determined to land these Games in Ontario? I can think of five particularly important reasons. First of all, we want to build better sporting venues and opportunities for our amateur athletes. Secondly, We want our kids to be inspired by our athletes who will be training and succeeding like never before. We want more of our kids from all backgrounds to pursue amateur sports, and we want all our kids to be healthy. Thirdly, we want to create the over 15,000 jobs in construction that will help us through this global recession, and we want to build legacy venues that will enhance our quality of life over the long term. Fourth, we have a province It is as diverse in its people as it is beautiful in its geography. And we want those 250,000 visitors that the Games attract to come and see us, to experience Ontario, and to strengthen our tourism industry. Finally, we want to instill in Ontarians of all ages an even greater pride in our province, a pride that will grow when we host the Americas, a pride that will grow when our children have more sports opportunities and when our athletes can excel. I want to thank everyone who's put so much of their creativity, effort and knowledge into preparing this bid. Together, we're going to keep up the pace and promote Ontario. Together, we're going to speak loudly, passionately and convincingly with one voice and with one goal, to bring the Pan Am Games to our province so we can host a truly remarkable event that will provide great memories for athletes and sports fans and improve the quality of life for all Ontarians for many years to come. Thank you very much.
2: And welcome back to Just Right Here on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. That, of course, was Ontario Liberal Premier Dalton McGuinty promoting the Pan Am Games on his YouTube video. And the uh, first thing I want to get to here is this is from the front page of the Hamilton Spectator on Tuesday, written by Gary McKay, and it says Splinter Group Campaigns to Halt Pan Am Funds. And it reads, quote, The Freedom Party of Ontario has launched an Internet-based campaign to derail the Southern Ontario bid to host the 2015 Pan Am Games. The No Tax for Pan Am campaign launched yesterday with a website, notaxforpanam.com, as well as a Facebook group and a presence on Twitter. Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who is also a spokesperson for the No Tax for Pan Am bid committee, said the uh, No Tax and Am Committee, no, no taxes, not the bid committee, <laughs> said the goal is to get the three levels of government to withdraw all funding commitments for the Games. David Peterson, who was chairing the bid, said he's not concerned you're always going to have splinter groups although i've never heard of these people we have unbelievable support for this bid says peterson McKeever said the campaign is aimed at all municipalities in the bid including hamilton that would use tax money to fund the games the city of hamilton has committed 60 million dollars to the new stadium portion of the bid I don't see any reason to step back, although I'm fully aware there might be some who would be opposed and might align themselves with this, said Mayor Fred Eisenberger. He noted the games would provide a legacy of sports facilities similar to what the 1930 British Empire games did. McKeever's group says multi-sports games leave only debt and that government money could be put to better use. The Freedom Party of Ontario was a partner in the grassroots campaign that effectively killed the London-Ontario bid to host the 1991 Pan Am Games when they convinced the federal government not to provide funding. Gordon Hume, chairperson of the London bid, said the current bid committee should take this campaign seriously. The people who make the decisions, and I include senior levels of government, want to know that it's going to be a positive ev- event in the community. They should be doing significant public relations. You need to show a groundswell of positive public support, said Hume. And uh, the Southern Ontario bid is up against uh, Lima, Peru and Bogota, Colombia, and a decision expected in the fall, which is why we're talking about this today. And joining me on the phone now from his office, I believe, um. Uh, way up in uh, not in Uxbridge. where are you now, uh, Paul? Are you there?
6: I'm over in Oshawa. You're
2: in Oshawa now. And um, what do you what do you have to say about that coverage there? What do you can you believe that David Peterson has never heard about the no tax for Pan Am bit?
6: No, no? I don't believe it at all. He was he was a London MPP at the very time when when Freedom Party was on the ground, uh, you know, pushing the uh, the bit uh, the, the, the the no tax for Pan Am campaign in 1984-85. It's a, it's a lie, frankly. As far as I'm concerned, he's not telling the truth uh... he's pretending that we don't exist, and hoping that everyone—you know—it's one of these pretending realities uh, that he hopes everyone will b- buy into. But the ground su- swell of support—I uh, have, I haven't seen any of that. Uh, there's, there's no uh, polls that I'm aware of. And when the uh, the polling was done during the uh, for the 1991 bid, it was 70% opposed. So th- this is a complete myth that they're trying to sp- spout out. And you'll notice they're trying to do it very quietly. They want this whole thing to be locked in. Um, before anyone can say no, and that's why it's very important for everybody to go to our website, uh, notaxforpanam.com, and to register on the petition, send those letters out to the, uh, the editor, and, of course, write those emails over to the Premier and to the Prime Minister.
2: Excellent idea. You know, it's alarming to consider that hosting the Pan Am Games would cost every individual in Canada $50, which works out to 200 bucks for a family of four. Uh, but, of course, the reality is that every man, woman, chi- and child is not really paying an equal share, and that actual taxpayers are a much smaller number, um, You know, increasing the real cost to taxpayers considerably. Isn't that so?
6: Well, uh, you know, the... Th- 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 Yes, I mean, this is going to affect everybody right across the, right across the country. I mean, a person, I, I saw some emails the other day, or rather postings, uh, to a Cape Breton um, publication. Someone had written a letter to the other in Cape Breton about our no tax for Pan Am campaign. And there's great concern there. I mean, there's, there are people saying, well, you know, they've, they've uh, carried the load here in Cape Breton for a while, so it's our turn to do the same. But, of course, the story is, uh, you know, that two wrongs somehow make a right. That's not correct, and, and it's absolutely wrong. Uh, to be forcing people at these various municipal- municipalities, uh, each of whom are in a province. Uh, if they're in the province of Ontario, they're going to be having to pay an Ontario tax. And being in Canada, they're also going to have to pay a federal tax, because we're going to be looking at $500 million federally, $500 million provincially, plus the local tax. It's, it's incredible the amount of money they're putting toward this
2: um you know for me again of course this is deja vu all over again and um i know that you were sort of an outsider to freedom party's previous campaign uh, to derail the tax funding for the pan am games here in london Um, Partially because you're a lot younger than I am, I guess. That must be the reason. (laughs) But um, now I know that you've personally undertaken a a complete research project on our first campaign, uh, which was successful, and you've gone into some detail that I wouldn't have ever dreamed of, getting right into all the radio commentaries, press clippings, um, researching what's online in in the Hansards and everything. And uh, given your somewhat more objective view of the first campaign, since you weren't directly involved with it as compared, to mine, let's say, because um, since I was, I was the chairman of the No Tax for Pan Am committee here in London, uh, what major lesson did you come away with, at least so far, from what you've seen from the first round?
6: Well, you know, I'd, I'd say there's a couple of things. That, you know, First of all, just the recording of the information itself, how important it is to record history. Um, when people go to the NoTaxForPanAm.com website, they're seeing history uh, as it actually it was. video, the actual publications, evidence that, uh, you know, one person going door-to-door can lead to 12 people helping to distribute, can lead to hundreds or thousands of people submitting uh, simply a one little card or making signing one little petition and causing the stoppage of $100 million of taxpayer money on a silly game. Um, and the games themselves aren't silly, but the expenditure is absolutely silly uh, because, you know, every dollar... That they're spending here is a dollar they're not spending on that's not being spent on a productive use. Uh, but back, back to your question, I, I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
6: the other thing I would say is, you know, that that whole example that the el- the, the elephant can be pushed by the mouse, you know, and um, uh, people too often think that oh, you can't fight city hall, or you're not going to be able to do anything about this, and so it's David Peterson, and he's a former premier that fixes in. Well, that's absolutely false, and I would encourage everybody to watch the video and and see that it was done. I mean, it started with a a single letter to the editor by Mark Emery, and it snowballed within months into a defeat of one of the most corrupt bids. uh, Well, one of the many corrupt bids there are to loot the taxpayer and give it to a few construction guys uh who can build some stadiums that will remain empty most of the time and that'll be big draws on the public purse for for years and decades to come.
2: Well of course that's that was the expectation what would have happened here. What was really interesting back when they canceled the uh, the pan am games here for London um the justification from the uh, sports minister at the time Otto Jelinek, was that uh, we were also in an economic slump at the time and the government a conservative government was saying that um you know when when times are tough governments shouldn't be spending money like that. Uh would we say it's a little different today? <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, it's, it, I don't think government should ever be spending spending money like that. Sure. I mean uh, the the role of government. But I mean,
2: even by their own standards, you know, to say uh, it, it almost seems like their justifications are irrelevant because they use a different one for doing the same thing in two different cases.
6: Well, you're right. I mean, yesterday I listened literally to Buzz Hargrove and Ernie Eves on a Toronto radio program, and I called into that program and I said, look, you know, before you start talking about cutbacks in the in the uh, public sector, and certainly there has to be some, but I said before you even go there, one of the easy marks, one of the low hanging pieces of fruit. Is, is not spending even more on uh, the Pan Am games. And the response from both Ernie Eves, the supposedly right-wing conservative, and Buzz Hargrove, the supposedly left-wing you know, former union leader, is, well, oh, come on, games are good and games are inspiring, and this will be an economic stimulus. Well, this isn't an economic stimulus. There's two ways you can spend your money. You can either spend it on consumption, you know, uh, French fries and watching a movie, or you can spend it on production, building a factory, building a power generation plant, that kind of thing. And stimulus, you know, when it's done properly, is an individual putting his own money into a plant and building something that people actually want and using that money as capital, productive capital. It's the tree that sprouts the many apples season after season after season. What these guys are doing is they're giving us two weeks' worth of apples and saying, well, those were good, what next? It's consumption, and it's not stimulus, they're, they're, cat, they're, they're trying to uh, categorize it as stimulus uh, because we're in this economic catastrophe. It's the best spin they can possibly think to put on it. But this is nothing other than just a complete looting of the taxpayer. Uh, this money's going to go to a few uh, well-connected um, uh, construction people. It's going to pay for some overtime for police. Uh, 15,000 jobs, it, Well, that'd be like saying there's going to be 15,000 people hired for the, for the carnival that's going to be in town for, for three weeks, and they're all going to be unemployed thereafter anyway. And at the same time, we're going to be left with these, what, bicycle tracks? How are they going to make any money? There's no way. They'll be building empty venues. It'll look great, but it'll put us uh, $1.4 billion or more in debt. You know it's not going to be $1. Of course. $1.4 billion. That's and for sure. You know, probably $100 million on every billion and a half they borrow for years and years and years to come. This is crazy, and we've really got to get on that You know, no tax for pay website, sign that petition, and get those letters out to the Premier and the Prime Minister saying, quickly, now, you know, this Sunday and Monday, uh, the, the the bid, um, well the people coming out to, to look at the bid uh, venues. Yeah. So the, from the Pan Am uh, uh, organization, they're coming out on Sunday and on Monday to look at the venues. And uh, the more... Uh, howl and, and protest we can get out there in the newspapers by writing letters to the editor by calling those le- uh, those newspapers don't be afraid to do that and uh... by write, by a, a petitioning on that website i think the more unwelcome uh... The, the visitors can know uh... you know the expenditure of our money is the, the games are welcome but not the not the expenditure of one point four million billion of our dollars and if that's the way they plan to do it i, I say turn around and, and find another country to loot
2: Well, you're not going to find me arguing with that, because that's one legacy I don't want to be stuck with. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today, and we'll certainly encourage everyone to check that website out, www.notaxforpanam.com. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. And that was Paul McKeever of the Freedom Party of Ontario, of course, and uh, Pan Am Part 2, which is really interesting, because Pan Am Part 1 was actually begun by a fellow named Mark Emery, local to our city here, of course, and he's going to be our next subject when we come back on the other side of this break.
1: There is a coffee shop in Vancouver every 10 metres. You know, best they can
2: figure all the coffee they're drinking, it's being cancelled out by all the pot they're smoking. <laughs> As soon as the caffeine kicks in, the marijuana takes over. I'm not a very good stone person, you know. I think I I quit smoking drugs too early, that's the problem. I've had no long-term investment in developing the habit, right? That's the way it works. The longer you smoke marijuana, the better you get at it. It works the same way as compound interest in a mutual fund. Just like the ads say, if Natalie started smoking pot when she was 22, smoked pot for 30 years, just a little bit every day, By the time she retires, she'll be at ease and have complete inner peace.
5: (laughs) And I would love to introduce to you your hometown hero, Mark Emery.
1: you very much. Wow. Good to hear it. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? Don't you know you're clapping for one of the 50 most wanted men in the world? <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like a joke. It sounds like the top 50 most wanted in the world, says the U.S. Justice Department, and the number one drug trafficking kingpin drug lord in all of Canada. Apparently, I am bigger than Hell's Angels. I'm bigger than all the gangs. In fact, we've had 19 murders in Vancouver this year all by gangs. I'm bigger than... Actually, I was described as the most significant threat to the United States of anyone in Canada. <laughs> I don't know about the United States, but I hope I'm the most significant threat to the United States government that there is in Canada. That's for sure. And to think, and to think all of this, was nurtured by my very growing up here in this town. I'm from London, Ontario. I spent 34 years in this city. I had my first comic book table four doors down from Aeolian Hall here at a place called The Book Bin years ago. So blame comic books, blame growing up in London, Ontario for producing one of the top 50 most wanted in the world. And it's, it's so absurd because I've been a bookseller all my life. You know, I am going to jail to the United States in September October, and it'll be for a five-year term in a U.S. federal penitentiary. They're going to put me with all other aliens. Um, Canadians tend to get put in prisons with foreigners, and those are people who are caught in the United States doing things, and there's apparently 10 million illegal aliens there, so whenever they're caught, they get put in a federal penitentiary, and I'll be with all them. And one of the things I do know about surviving jails, because I've been arrested 23 times for marijuana alone, and jailed 17 times in eight out of 10 provinces. I- I've sold an obscene record in 1990 uh, from the store City Lights book. what happens? is the Ontario Provincial Police here had decided they were going to ban a rap record. And it never happened before. And uh, it was called the two live crews, nasty as they want to be. And uh, the, police, the police banned it. And you know what, you know what I learned? Our freedoms are left to very few people to defend because you know, we have thousands We had thousands of music stores in Ontario at that time and not a single store Was willing to sell that disc to go to court to challenge an edict Not even a law an edict by the police that said you can't sell that if you sell that We're gonna charge you with selling an obscene record and that's when I learned you cannot let your freedoms be protected by big corporations because they don't care about principle
2: And that was uh, Mark Emery here in London, Ontario at the Aeolian Hall a few weeks ago. And that's an exclusive clip here to CHRW Radio because that was actually recorded by our own on-the-spot reporter Alex Jarowski, here at 94.9 FM on your radio dial. And I'm Bob Metz. I'll be here with you from now till noon. Of course, in the days that Mark Emery was uh, active in a lot of those non-pot campaigns, I was involved with him here in London. We were uh, sort of a, I would refer to us as a Lennon-McCartney team in a way, because there was a real tension there. Uh, the tension, of course, broke by the uh, late 80s, early 90s when we went our separate ways. And Mark, um, his tactics are not those that I particularly have approved of. And I think a lot of people misunderstand uh, the relationship and what I what I favor and what I do not favor. I'm certainly opposed to drug prohibition. Anybody who's heard uh, the show I did here, uh, not about Mark Emery, but about the drug laws themselves, um, would know that. And um, for those who want to know everything about my real opinions about Mark and the the long-term relationships and the the other issues that Mark was involved with, Um, uh, I would suggest you you check our website out again, justwritemedia.org and check out show number 29 back November 1st, 2007 where I did a special called Citizen Mark Goes to Washington about Mark Emery breaking the law and basically a history of how the whole thing um, evolved. I did that at that time because back in 2007 Mark was already expected to be extradited within a few months of that um, there were a few updates in the interim but of course um, it seems that uh, the, the wheels of justice turn slowly even when uh, they're the wheels of injustice now you know the things that mark's been doing lately i find uh, rather uh Unprincipled. I'm afraid that's the only way I can look at it, you know. And yet he he comes across talking about principle, and I and I know that there are principles at play there. He he correctly points out how freedom is defended by so few people. He talks about how uh, he's a very artic- articulate speaker. But here's something I caught on YouTube uh, just the other day by by uh, someone. Uh, who calls himself a JL Reality Production, who produced this uh, video on YouTube called Sharing a Piece of Mark Emery's Legacy. And there were some references there to Toronto's Freedom Festival and Marijuana March of 2007. And you see Mark in there talking about how one should fight for their cause. And he says, um, you know, you should basically... uh, put on some chains he says you know it's amazing what you can do with a long bit of chain like for example if you really want to draw attention to something you're really mad at something just go to the middle of lions gate bridge and walk right across with a chain and stop all the traffic going both ways unfurl a banner over the bridge so that thousands of people can see it in the city on what on whatever it is you're against and you're going to piss everybody right off but man by the end of the day everybody will know what's bothering you and then i saw some clips of him in a in a, almost acting like a preacher and talking about how you know, everything he was taught, all his values you know, they came from the Bible and they taught it in Genesis 29 and all that kind of thing and then he says, you know, he says I'm only doing what my parents taught me my Sunday school teacher taught me my teachers taught me so don't blame me for how I turned out blame the system and that doesn't sound like a guy who's talking about individual responsibility to me and it was almost verbatim what he, what, what he just said in the clip you just heard seems to me that Mark's been doing everything possible to paint an image of himself being exclusively about pot, which that wasn't really his, his background. This was not the reality of his past, and that's very clearly illustrated if you tune into that show I just recommended. And, uh, but given his regrettably unprin- unprincipled approach to the issue currently, I'm not so sure I can say this with any degree of confidence today um as an anarchist emory's primary objective is to smash the state that's why you hear him saying you know i don't know about being the biggest enemy of the states but he wants to be the biggest enemy of the, of the u.s government you know just for the sake of it and uh, you know smashing the state leaves a glaring vacuum in resolving the fundamental issues of law contract and necessary government but of course that's an issue with anarchists they don't like any necessary government and, uh, but even so, Emory has been violating the principles of anarchy as well, especially when he's heard advocating, uh, you know, government-licensed users, I hear him talking about, and government collections of taxes on hemp products. And is that an anarchist talking? Where is that coming from? And it just seems that he's all over the place to to defend uh, just smoking pot for the sake of smoking pot. Now, I I think it's a great injustice what's happening to him. He shouldn't be going to jail for what he's doing. But, you know, his appeals to emotion, whims, and and outright self-sacrifice would make Ayn Rand turn in her grave, I tell you. In his current alliances and pledged support to true status of the left like uh, the green party and the ndp party i mean they're so anti-freedom both from the broader perspective and even from the purported goal of legalizing pot it kind of boggles my mind to see mark have uh, taken this tack in in, in his issue uh, you, you know i have yet to see publicly Any of his uh, left wing friends, the important ones and supporters like the NDP and all the others that he has appealed to, to do anything really effective either for Emery or for his cause. And I think it's an irony indeed that whenever he's on a London tour, and I listened into the talk shows on talk show radio around town, he's on the various stations, and uh, I got to tell you, it's coincidental that. Only my first guest today, who is Gord Mood, talking about Archie comic books, but who happens to be also involved with Freedom Party, has ever called to support him or his cause on, on the talk shows. Most Londoners are very quiet about it, or even don't like Mark, and there's, they have a lot of justification for that in some sense. And, uh, you know, elsewhere you've got Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, for example, who was just on the show, who's never met Mark Emery personally, but has been calling to the public's attention the sheer injustice of what is being done to mark for the you know the supposed unspeakable crime of selling marijuana seeds online and you know you think about this while the Lockerbie bomber gets extradited to freedom for his role in the outright murder of over 200 people, Mark Emery, a non-violent offender, didn't get caught with drugs, guns, anything, not money, uh, gets extradited by Canadian authorities to a U.S. Pre- a prison and, you know, unfreedom in the unth degree, let's face it, in a so-called uh, free nation. So... The ironies are, are, are immense here, and I don't know that uh, our drug laws are going to be fought the way Mark has gone about doing it. He's certainly drawn a lot of attention to it. A lot of people can draw attention to issues. And he's had a tremendous amount of success on other issues in the past, and one would argue he has had success to some degree in certainly calling attention to this issue. Whether it'll ever be changed remains to be seen. Of course, there's so many uh, you know interests, including organized crime, who have a lot to gain from leaving the drug laws as they are, as do governments and DEAs and officials like that. So that's a pretty big monster to try and fight, as unjust as it is. And if you want to hear what I think about drug laws, you can tune in to some of the shows on our archive. But I think that's about all we've got time for this week. So we hope that you'll join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Hey, until then, be right, do right, stay right, act right, think right. See you then.
4: Color it to black and white
2: Under the clothes, Everything will be I believe in medical marijuana, don't you? I think it's a good idea. Say you're sick, you're horribly sick. It's legal now. You got like the, hor- you got like the corns. You got something horrible like that, you know? you know? Go down to the doctor, hook up a little puff puff. It's a beautiful thing. Right here, flin-flon, Manitoba. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Government-run pot farm. I love that. Government-run. Eh? You think the people who work at the post office move slow? How <laughs> <Imagine> this?
4: <laughs> I can't believe it.